Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. At this hour, there are more than a quarter of a million confirmed cases of the coronavirus just in the United States and in the U.S., at least 6,699 people have died. One week ago at this hour, the number of dead was 1,451. The death toll has more than quadrupled since that in a week. Today, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious diseases expert, is saying that it's going to get much worse before it gets better. And New York State is, of course, one of the first areas where we are seeing just how bad it can get. Just in that one state, more than 500 people died from coronavirus in just the last 24 hours, making it the biggest single-day increase in deaths in that state or any state in the United States so far. The governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, comparing the pandemic to a slow-moving hurricane. And in two days on Sunday, New York City will run out of ventilators. According to New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, today, Governor Cuomo, acting on that dire need, signed an executive order that will enable the state to take ventilators and personal protective equipment from places not currently using them. Mayor de Blasio also called for the military to mobilize doctors and nurses in uniform to help ease the strain on New York City's civilian medical personnel as hospitals continue to be overwhelmed with patients. In a sign of just how dire the situation is, EMS personnel in New York City have now been instructed not to bring cardiac arrest patients to the hospital if they cannot save the patient in the field. I also want to take just a brief moment here to note that I am anchoring at this hour because our friend and colleague, Brooke Baldwin, who normally anchors at this time, has herself been diagnosed with coronavirus. Brooke has chills, aches, and a fever, even though she had been taking all sorts of precautions. She tested positive this morning anyway. Brooke, we all love you. We are all thinking of you. We are all praying for you. Get well. I want to start today with CNN's Shimon Prokupes. He's in New York City. And Shimon, the medical ship USNS Comfort was brought in to help alleviate the strain on New York's hospital system by taking non-coronavirus patients. But so far, we're told that the Comfort has only received 20 patients. That's right, uh, Jake, 20 patients. Uh, and I've been here uh, pretty much all afternoon, not seen any activity to indicate that they've taken any more patients. The thing is here at the Comfort, uh, they don't want to take patients who tested positive for the coronavirus. Uh, and as a result, there really aren't that many patients at hospitals who don't have the coronavirus. And where the stress, the relief that the doctors and the frontline Uh, employees and the people that are working at these hospitals, they need relief from the coronavirus patients. They need them taken out of their hospitals and brought to field hospitals to try and relieve some of the pressure. So that is what is in process right now. The governor here, Governor Cuomo, said he was going to talk to military officials to see if there was anything they can do so that the ship behind me, the Comfort, can't start taking 
some of these coronavirus patients. The issue for the ship, we're told, is if they do start taking these patients, how are they going to clean the ship up basically afterwards? There's concern uh, about contamination on the ship, and the military is concerned about how to clean that, Jake. All right, Jamal Prokopez in New York. Stay safe. Joining me now, Dr. James Phillips. He's chief of disaster and operational medicine at George Washington University Hospital here in Washington, D.C. Dr. Phillips, uh, the Trump administration is now expected to recommend that Americans wear masks when they leave the house. A a top health advisor cautioned uh, that masks should not lull Americans into any false sense of security uh, where they stop social distancing. Uh, What do you think Americans should do when it comes to masks? Uh, Jake, it's good to see you again. Um, My thoughts go out to Brooke. Uh, I, I think that the important thing that people need to understand, and it's not super scientific, it's the purpose of why this recommendation is going to come forward. It's very important that the general public remembers that if recommendations come to you to wear masks, whether that's a surgical mask you might have your hands on, a scarf or a bandana, the purpose of that is not to keep you healthy. The purpose of that is because we have to assume that you yourself are sick, even without symptoms, and we need to keep you from getting others sick. So if you think about a surgical mask, it's designed to keep the saliva and the droplets from the surgeon from getting into a patient during an operation. In the same manner, this will be designed to keep your droplets from getting out into the general area around you. It does not prevent you from inhaling droplets from other people. If uh, someone cannot get their hands on one of those very basic uh, surgical masks, um, is a scarf, a bandana, or, or any sort of mouth covering good enough? Well, I think that it's better than nothing. You know, the surgical masks need to be reserved for hospital workers and first responders. There's no question about that. Um, if uh, There's been a lot of people reaching out, trying to find ways to be useful with their skills. And one of those skills has been the ability to create cloth masks. Now, studies have shown that cloth masks do not protect people from inhaling um, small particles, such as um, droplets that contain coronavirus. But they should act as a shield to keep your droplets from getting out onto others and onto, the, uh, onto objects around you. So in that sense, cloth masks may be very useful, and therefore we can put people who are really trying to help uh, to work and allow them to manufacture these for the general public. It's better than nothing. Doc- better than nothing. Dr. Phillips, I want to ask you, you've heard that EMS workers in New York uh, are being told not to bring in cardiac patients to the hospital if they cannot save the patient in the field. Is this the beginning of the rationing of life-saving health care that, that we've heard about in places such as Italy, where the system is so overwhelmed? There's such a surge in patients that, that doctors and nurses and EMS personnel have to actually decide, well, I'm going to save this person, and because I'm saving him, I can't save her or vice versa. Is this just the beginning of that? It's, it's close to that topic. So it's not a matter of uh, necessarily not having enough resources to, to save those folks that have what we call an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. What we know about folks who have their heart stop in the public and not in a hospital is the mortality rate of that is just around 90%. And only about 2% of people actually leave the hospital with their brain fully functioning. So the numbers are already dismal. 
The big concern that we have as healthcare providers and as first responders, and I'm a, I'm a medical director of two EMS agencies as well, and what we're concerned about is that when you're doing CPR or using one of those special bags to help breathe for someone, it generates a tremendous amount of very tiny particles, all of which can be very infectious and cause spread of the disease not only to those first responders, but also throughout the emergency department infecting other healthcare workers and patients. So it's one of these terrible decisions that's being made, but it's the correct one that we want to reduce the amount of what we call nosocomial infection, stuff that takes place inside the hospital, by reducing the amount of CPR and breathing in that form uh, that takes place. So it's going to be a very grueling decision for those EMS providers, but it's also important to know that those, those guidelines already exist. If you are a paramedic in the middle of a futile CPR incident, um, if, it's, if, if it's deemed futile, they can already stop in the field. This is just expanding. All right, Dr. James Phillips, thank you so much. Keep up the, keep up the work. We're all thinking about all the people on the front lines of this, this horrible war against this pandemic. Thank you for your time and for what you do. Uh, President Trump is now claiming the federal government is just a backup for states who should have prepared better. I'm going to talk to a former top official who handled the Ebola response in the U.S. about that and more. That's next. Plus a death rate higher than that of New York's or anywhere else in the country per capita. We're live in Louisiana with a look at what's behind the surge in that state. Stay with us. The buck stops over there. President Trump's message to states hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic. You should have already had this covered. President Trump saying that the federal government should really just be a backup to states and hospitals overwhelmed by cases. But we're a backup. Ideally, those hospitals would have had all this equipment. Ideally, those states should have had all this equipment. And I think they will the next time. Let's bring in CNN White House correspondent Caitlin Collins. Caitlin, give me a reality check here. There is a national stockpile of medical supplies. It's not for the use of the American people at times of emergency? Yeah, that's a message the president has been pushing. As you've seen, more and more governors say they are not getting what they need from the federal government. He's often using it as a way to deflect blame. You saw his son-in-law and senior advisor, Jared Kushner, pushing it even further during his first appearance at a coronavirus briefing yesterday when he was saying it's not meant to be a state stockpile, it's meant to be the national stockpile. Though, of course, typically in times of need, you see the states pull from those from that federal stockpile. And Jake, right after that briefing, people pointed to the language even from the Department of Health and Human Services, where initially on the stockpile's website, it said it's for state, local, tribal, and territorial responders when they need federal assistance. But Jake, that guidance, that description changed overnight to fit what Kushner said yesterday about the stockpile. And now it says the strategic national stockpile's role is to supplement state and local supplies during public health emergencies. So we are seeing that change happen already. I should note Republican Senator Cory Gardner pushed back on what Kushner said, saying he didn't know what he was referencing, that, of course, states are supposed to be able to use from the federal stockpile. And Caitlin, we just learned that the White House has a new protocol when it comes to uh, testing those around President Trump. Yeah, before people were just getting their temperatures taken before going into the meetings with the president or the vice president. Now they're going to be getting actual coronavirus tests. You heard the president say yesterday he had taken another one. It was one that delivered results in about 15 minutes. And now they're going to be administering those to people who are in close proximity 
to the president and the vice president, though we don't know exactly what that means. Does it mean anyone coming into the West Wing will get one or just people who have meetings inside the Oval Office of the president? Right now, we're not getting a lot of clarity from the White House on that exactly, but it is going to be these new tests that only get uh, they get results pretty quickly, they say. All right, Caitlin Collins, uh, we'll catch up with you in the next hour or two. Joining me now, the former Ebola czar under President Obama, Ron Klain. Uh, Ron, thanks for joining us. Uh, everyone, uh, all the governors at least, seem to be looking to the federal government right now for more supplies, for testing, for ventilators. Uh, President Trump, uh, his message is, hey, we're just a backup. Uh, we're not supposed to be the source of these materials. Is that true? Is that accurate? Uh, no, it's not true. And it's also not advisable. I mean, first of all, the reason we have a federal government is to step in in times of crisis. Uh, this is a crisis. And this is a crisis from a global infectious disease threat. That's why President Obama uh, mastered a whole of U.S. government response to Ebola. That's why President Trump himself said that he was putting a task force in charge with First Secretary Azar and the Vice President Pence and so on and so forth. So, of course, the federal government's supposed to lead. It's also important that it do lead, Jake, for this reason. This, uh, this disease is going to hit different parts of the country at different times. If you turn all the states loose to grab whatever they can grab, the stuff's going to wind up in the wrong place at the wrong time. So we need a national organization both to get us more stuff and to get it to the right place when it's needed. Uh, Ron, CNN's K-File has new reporting that Health and Human Services Department Secretary Alex Azar said last year... Uh, that the number one thing that kept him up at night uh, in the biodefense world is a pandemic flu, a possibility of a pandemic yeah. flu. Um, so President Trump has been saying no one could have anticipated this. No one could have anticipated this. Um, obviously, plenty of experts anticipated it uh, for decades. Um, what, if Azar was worried about this, how on earth has the federal response been the way it's been? Yeah, it's a great question, Jake. First of all, of course, everyone saw it coming. I wrote an article that laid out the scenario five years ago. Uh, much more importantly than me, Bill Gates gave a big speech in 2017 where he warned of this. The, the warnings of this have been uh, quite uh, prevalent, including the Obama administration in a transition meeting with the Trump administration, incoming Trump administration, saying this was one of the top things to worry about. Let's give Alex Azar some credit here. He saw this coming. Not only that, he asked for money uh, to be uh, to replenish our stockpiles, and the Trump OMB said no. I, I think there's always been a view inside those closest to the president, starting with John Bolton closing down the pandemic office in 2018, that uh, healthcare threats were kind of soft threats. They weren't the kind of threats like terrorism and you know kind of a, a nuclear attack or something like that, and they weren't really national security threats. So these threats were put on the back burner by the people outside the health policy area in the Trump administration, very different from the Obama administration. So I think that mindset that this wasn't really a, a, a deep, uh, uh, really hard security threat really uh, kind of colored how the Trump administration approached this. And then, of course, once the warnings came in January and February, uh, there was a real lack of attention and focus on it. Well, Ron, let me ask you, because, um, you know, the response from a uh, former uh, ambassador and national security advisor, John Bolton, as well as Tim Morrison, who was on the National Security Council, is that they didn't shut down the pandemic office in the National Security Council. But what they did is they folded it in to a different office. I think it was the office that dealt with um, 
weapons of mass destruction and other and other big threats. So it wasn't exactly like they shut it down, but they did. Uh, the, the, the director was removed and then all those other people reported to somebody yeah. else. But knowing the NSC as you do, um, does that still have an effect or does it have the same effect? Um, w- explain yeah. to us who don't really understand necessarily the, the workings yeah. of bureaucracy. Yeah, no, so it's a great point, Jake, and that's kind of exactly the point I was trying to make, which is that what the pandemic office was looking for was for naturally occurring diseases like this coronavirus that would come to the United States. Bolton said that's not a security threat, shut the office down and took some of the people and moved them into the office that's looking for terrorist attacks on the United States, WMD kind of attacks on the United States. Now, some of those attacks could be with biological agents, you know, the possibility that terrorists would weaponize Ebola or something like that. And so those people were looking for that. But they were looking for something different, right? They were looking for terrorists bringing a disease to the United States, not tourists bringing a disease to the United States. That's what health people look for. They were looking for people coming back from Europe on spring break who would bring this disease. That's not what Bolton was focused on. So to me, Jake, the way I've tried to explain this is it'd be like shutting down the fire department and taking a few firemen and putting them to work for the police force and then saying, well, we still have firefighters because they're working for the police force. They're just different kinds of responders looking at different kinds of threats. The threat of a natural occurring pandemic, that's what was keeping Alex Azar up last year. That's what has got our country in a crisis this year. And Ron, I want to get your response to something that White House senior advisor and presidential son-in-law Jared Kushner said. His, basically a message to governors last night. Take a listen. The notion of the federal stockpile was it's supposed to be our stockpile. It's not supposed to be state stockpiles that they then use. Just because you're scared, you ask your medical medical professionals, and they don't know. You have to take inventory of what you have in your own state, and then you have to be able to show that there's a real need. What's your response? I mean, I just think that's horrible. I mean, look, uh, every person in this country, we pay taxes for that stockpile. And right now, this is a crisis. And the idea that they're going to finger point at governors instead of getting the help they need and some suggestion that somehow the governors are asking frivolously for this. I mean, every time I watch CNN and see someone in New York reporting, I hear sirens in the background all the time. That city is in trouble. And the federal government should be doing everything it can to get it the aid that it needs. And it's not just going to be New York. You talked about New Orleans a little while ago. This is spreading around the country. And if, if, if this isn't what the federal government is for, I don't know what it's for. Ron Klain, the former Ebola czar under President Obama, also a senior advisor uh, to Vice President Joe Biden, who was obviously running for president uh, against Donald Trump. Uh, thanks so much, Ron. Really appreciate your time. Uh, coming up next, thanks, a bus driver who posted a video plea to passengers begging them not to cough without covering their mouths. That bus driver has now died from coronavirus. Stay with us. Transportation workers are on the front lines of this pandemic as subway lines and bus routes continue to operate, especially in major cities. Among those workers, 50-year-old Jason Hardgrove, a bus driver in Detroit, who shared his frustrations in this Facebook video less than two weeks ago. We out here as public workers doing our job, trying to make an honest living to take care of our families. But for you to get on the bus and stand on the bus and cough several times without covering up your mouth 
and you know that we in the middle of a pandemic that lets that 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 lets me know that some folks don't care utterly don't give a f- excuse my language but that's how i feel right about now jake look this is a very tough story especially when you watch that video when you see his passion, when he's talking about this, he's not talking about quitting the, the bus line. He's just talking about people changing their uh, behavior on that bus. Now, of course, we can't say where he got COVID-19, but what we do know is days later, he did pass away. And this has had wide-ranging effects. In fact, March 17th, there was a walkout by bus drivers across the city because they wanted gloves, they wanted masks to protect themselves. Just on the way to this live location, we saw plenty of buses go by us full of people. When you think about a city the size of Detroit, where all these people have been deemed essential workers, especially the fast food workers, the grocery store workers, they're all still using public transportation to get to where they needed to go. We were outside the hospital yesterday and watched people use the bus to get to the hospital. So, of course, if you're on a bus and you're coughing, you could be putting other people in danger. And you think about how many people go through a bus line on a day-to-day basis, you understand the danger that bus dangers are on. Listen to the mayor talk about this man's sacrifice and what he went through. I don't know how you can watch it and not tear up. He knew his life was being put in jeopardy, even though he was going to work for the citizens of Detroit every day, by somebody who just didn't care, somebody who didn't take this yes, uh, seriously. Uh, and now he's gone. And you think about how tough this has been, and he leaves behind a family that the union here says they're going to try to take care of. But so many questions about whether or not this had to happen. Of course, bus drivers are still fighting to get those gloves and masks throughout the system. Ryan Young in the reporting. And in I'm Ed Lavendera in. And I'm Ed Lavendera in New Orleans. And here uh, the story as we're getting ready to hear another briefing from the governor of this state is uh, health officials really focusing on the higher than usual death rate because of the coronavirus infection here in this state. Um, and one of those factors and that many people are, are taking a closer look at is just the underlying health issues that many people here in this region have, where you have high levels of obesity, um, uh, kidney disease, as well as diabetes. The United Health Foundation ranks Louisiana as the, as the 49th in overall health here in the United States. And that is one of uh, the contributing factors as to why health and emergency officials here in the New Orleans area say uh, that it has really been one of the factors in why the death rate here has been uh, slightly higher, if not significantly higher than, than what we've seen in other parts of the country. And that is why uh, state officials, government officials, up and down the board, really urging people to take uh, the warnings of staying at home and distancing yourself from your family and friends so seriously because it becomes much more complicated here uh, in this particular area where we have seen this massive outbreak. Just a short while ago, the state of Louisiana uh, released its latest figures here in, uh, for the coronavirus. Um, remember yesterday we had seen the largest overall jump that we've seen uh, since all of this started. And now uh, the, the numbers are 10,297 overall cases. That's a jump of more than 1,100 cases and a jump of 60 deaths overnight, 306, 370 deaths 
here in the state of Louisiana. But what state officials will tell you they're looking the most closely looking at is the uh, hospital uh, use and the hospital bed use and the vents and the ventilators. Um, and all of those are continuing to jump up slightly. There is still hospital bed space, ICU bed space uh, in, in various areas and most of the regions here in the state of Louisiana. The governor of Louisiana has been warning that we could start reaching kind of crisis levels and uh, serious shortages here. And uh, in the uh, in the in the coming days, but they're looking at this weekend, early next week, before that becomes an issue. So I'm Ed Lavendera reporting uh, live from New Orleans. Scientists in Germany are looking to a 100-year-old tuber- tuberculosis drug as a possible possible stopgap vaccine for the coronavirus. CNN's Frederick Pleitkin explains now why a renowned microbiologist says that he is seeing some promising results. As frontline healthcare workers struggle to deal with an influx of coronavirus patients, and scientists around the world are racing to try and develop a vaccine, Stefan Kaufmann, a microbiologist from Germany's renowned Max Planck Society, believes he may have an interim solution. What we propose is we produce an intermediate stage of higher immunity, of higher protective mechanisms. It's called VPM1002 and is an enhanced version of an almost 100-year-old tuberculosis vaccine named BCG. And while tuberculosis and coronavirus have virtually nothing in common, TB being a bacterial infection, they both can cause severe respiratory problems. Professor Kaufman believes VPM1002 would boost the immune system to help it fight off infections with coronavirus. To provide a kind of innate, non-specific immunity against other infectious diseases, and that also includes viruses that cause pulmonary diseases, and coronavirus is one of them. The researchers are gearing up for trials with groups at high risk of suffering severe complications from coronavirus, medical professionals, and elderly patients. An advantage of VPM1002 clinical trials as a tuberculosis vaccine have almost been completed, and so far, the drug has proven to be safe. Now, they just need to see if it really is effective against COVID-19, which could take several months. Then it could be available fast, Professor Kaufman says. Our hope is that we can at least reduce significantly the proportion of individuals who develop disease and that hopefully the disease is also milder. If proven to be effective, Kaufman stresses VPM1002 should still only be used as an interim solution, saving lives until a targeted vaccine is market ready. U.S. experts believe it could work. I think it's a very innovative idea. You know, the vaccines that we're working on are against the virus itself. This would be a vaccine that stimulates the immune system so that it can fight off covid And Jake, the German scientists seem very confident that this is something that could indeed work. And they say if these trials are successful and it does prove effective against coronavirus and offers immunity, they are already working very closely together with some of the biggest vaccine makers in the world to be able to mass produce hundreds of doses of this vaccine, of this stopgap vaccine, and make it available around the world very fast. Jake. All right, Fred Plankin, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Hundreds of firefighters in New York have been infected with coronavirus. 
Coming up next, I'm going to talk with the FDNY commissioner about what's being done to protect these heroes. That's next. Stay with us. FDNY firefighters yesterday outside Elmhurst Hospital in Queens gathered to say thank you to healthcare workers for their tireless efforts to save not just civilian New Yorkers, but firefighters and EMS workers as well. Joining me now is Commissioner of the New York City Fire Department, Daniel Negro, to talk more about the challenge facing firefighters and EMS workers. Um, Commissioner, thanks for joining us. So at least 282 FDNY workers have tested positive for coronavirus. How are they doing? Have you spoken to any of them? Certainly. Uh, right now, the number is actually 376, and it goes up hourly. Uh, that's firefighters, EMTs, and paramedics here in New York. And how are they doing, if you've spoken to any of them? Are, are they in critical condition? Are they at home? Uh, just give us um, a sense of, I mean, it's a lot of, most of, that of them number, to talk about, obviously. Sure, Jake. Most of them are home. Um, in various degrees, as you've heard, there's from the symptoms here uh, go from mild to severe. We have at least one uh, one patient who's intubated for many days and on our, and um, is in very critical condition. Uh, most of our members are not hospitalized right now, but they're all fighting this fight against the virus, as many Americans are. Are your men and women on the front lines, paramedics, EMS workers, firefighters, do they have adequate protection when they go out and answer the call of duty? Well, we're following the guidelines from our state and city Department of Health and the CDC. So their protection consists of uh, gloves and gowns and masks and eye protection, which is the recommended. Uh, but certainly uh, every healthcare worker um, uh, runs that risk. They're dealing with very sick people each and every day. The FDNY has seen a 50% increase in call volume. Uh, I know FEMA sent 250 ambulances and I believe 500 EMTs to help handle the, handle the influx, the surge of people needing uh, emergency care. Um, is that enough? Do you still need more? Well, we'll see. The calls continue to rise. We've had uh, a week now of record numbers, 50% higher than our normal call volume. These folks from out of state, these brave, uh, mostly young people from every state in the union almost, uh, is a big help to our very overworked workforce that's been doing, many of them, consistent 16-hour tours to try to keep up with this call volume. And it's not only the volume, it's the... Uh, they're dealing with a different type of uh, uh, person, very sick individuals on almost every call. EMS in New York have been instructed not to bring in cardiac arrest patients to the hospital if they're not responsive to CPR. We had an emergency physician on the show earlier who explained that he agreed with that position, but I, I, I want you to explain that decision because I'm sure it was not easy. Well, I think it's a, it is a common practice. Um, it was just instituted here. I believe uh, all of our doctors tell us it's the right move. We will still work up a patient for some length of time, perhaps 20 minutes. But if we can't get uh, the response, if we can't get them breathing again and circulation again, uh, we're not going to bring that patient to the hospital where, again, there's nothing more they can do. So. 
Uh, it is a tough decision to make. Life and death's decisions are just that, the most difficult decision anyone can make. So our folks out in the field who already have a difficult job have just one more difficult thing to do. Do you anticipate that's just going to be the first protocol of that kind where because emergency workers, hospitals are dealing with such a surge of patients uh, that more and more decisions like that that would have been made possibly differently during a normal time will have to be made? I think listening to the professionals in this field, uh, one sees that this will not be the last um, it's really turning into a triage situation for our, uh, for our doctors and nurses in the hospitals, and that comes down to those people in the field, the EMTs and paramedics uh, here in the, the epicenter, really, in New York City, uh, who have to deal with these patients first. Uh, changes, additional changes may come. And, and lastly, Commissioner, what's your message to anybody who's listening who either lives in New York or is in a position of power in Washington, D.C. or in Albany, what do you need and what do you need from the public? Well, what we need from the public is for them to, unless it's absolutely necessary, stay home and stop the spread. Uh, We have more than 2,000 of our members right now are out on medical leave. This is spreading in New York like nothing we've ever seen and certainly spreading around the world. So we ask them to please stay home. We ask uh, Washington and the state and and all manufacturers, the need for equipment is enormous. The need for personal protective equipment will not uh, cease in the next week or or even the next month. So we, uh, our members in order to be protected will continue to need that stream of equipment to come in. Commissioner Negra, thank you. God bless you and the men and women who work for you. Please stay in touch in terms of anything you need so we can help bring and shine a light on it. Thank you very much. The White House may soon advise all Americans to wear masks or face coverings when they go out in public, but where can you even get them? And would a scarf be sufficient? I'm going to talk to our own Dr. Sanjay Gupta next. One patient expired. It's very hard to lose a patient that you've been fighting for. And many more will be lost in New York, some perhaps needlessly. The city might run out of ventilators by early next week, so the governor is going to commandeer them from places that don't need them right now. I'm not going to let people die because we didn't uh, redistribute ventilators. The National Guard are going to be deployed to pick up these ventilators, which are all across the state, and deploy them to places where we need them. The 1,000-bed USNS Comfort docked in New York Monday, but still only 20 patients on board. Some red tape, we're told. The Navy's position is they don't want to put COVID people on the ship because uh, it would be too hard to disinfect the ship afterwards. That's my rough interpretation of what they're saying. And those two cruise ships with sick and some dead on board, one of them finally allowed to dock in Florida. The sick will stay on board for treatment. The walking well, given masks and bust to the airport. 
There are now more than one million confirmed coronavirus cases worldwide, according to Johns Hopkins University. And nearly a quarter of them are here in the US, where there is no national stay-home order and some states still holding out. If you look at what's going on in this country, I just don't understand why we're not doing that. We really should be. Twelve states also exempting religious services from their stay-home orders. I don't think the the government has the authority to close a church. Um, I'm certainly not going to do that. Here's what can happen. Health officials tell CNN that 71 infections and one death are all connected to this one church in California. It's essential that we practice physical distancing everywhere, period. Mayors of our two most populated cities now telling us to wear masks outside. It's under consideration at the federal level. The most important thing is to keep this six-foot physical distance from individuals. This is an addendum and an addition to the physical separation, not as a substitute for it. Over in London, the coronavirus-positive prime minister still holed up at home, posting on Facebook. I still have a temperature, and so in accordance with government advice, I must continue uh, my self-isolation. Here, the White House just announced that anybody coming in close contact with the president or vice president will now be tested first. No one really knows how long this is going to last, but here are some hints. Here in Santa Monica, closed stores have boarded up for the long haul. The mayor of Washington, D.C. has said that they may not see a peak in cases until late June, early July. And at least 10 states have now closed school for the rest of the school year. So kids aren't going to be going back until end of August at the earliest. Jake. All right, Nick, thank you so much. Joining me now is CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, the the Trump administration is debating whether or not to issue new guidelines that Americans should wear masks whenever they leave the House. Um, If they're debating this and if, you know, cities like New York and L.A. are doing it and Dr. Fauci thinks we should be doing it, is there a company out there that's already producing them en masse? I mean, I'm told it's it's just simple cloth, easy to make. Is Hanes or Fruit of the Loom or Fruit of the Loom or any company on the case? I, I haven't heard that yet. I mean, you know, these recommendations, obviously, Jake, uh, still haven't officially come out. I, I'm pretty sure they, they are. And as you know, there's a couple of cities that have already started recommending it for their, their citizens. So far, you know, I, and I talked to Dr. Fauci about this. He says there's going to be a specific uh, recommendation coming soon. But in the meantime, you know, I think a lot of people are, are sort of making their own masks. And there's a lot of do-it-yourself sort of instructions online. I can tell you, uh, Jake, even my daughter, um, she heard us talking about it the other day. So she made, she made a mask, uh, you know, for, for, for me and for our family members to wear. Nice. Um, it's been a confusing sort of thing. Yeah, it's nice. It works well. But the uh, the idea that, uh, you know, people were told not to wear masks, now wear masks, it's a little bit confusing. This is these are not masks, as you mentioned, that should be going that should be taken away from healthcare workers. These are not the N95 masks. These are just masks that you wear to sort of uh, protect your protect other people from you. Because we all, you know, might have the virus. We have to behave like we have the virus, as you and I have been talking about for a couple of months now. Well, let me ask you about that, because obviously the instructions changed. Uh, The Surgeon General was very forceful uh, in February saying, don't go out there and buy masks. Masks won't help you. Was that, as I've heard described, a, a noble lie in the sense that 
They were saying mm. that in order to make sure that healthcare workers in the front lines got the masks and weren't taken or hoarded uh, by people in the general public. Or uh, is it more benign than that? It's because it turned out, and we didn't know this at the time, healthcare experts didn't know at the time, that it's actually much more easily transmissible than we thought. Uh, because, and, and for that reason, the message changed. Yeah, I, I think it's it's probably, you know, um, as with most of these things, a little combination of both, but probably more the latter. I mean, certainly we don't still don't want to take away uh, masks from healthcare workers. And I think, you know, it was extraordinary that was already anticipated back then, two months ago now, that we were going to run short, that despite everything that we knew about this pandemic, that these masks were going to run short for healthcare workers. I think what what has changed, especially over the last few weeks, is the clear recognition that even if you don't have any symptoms, no coughing, no sneezing, whatever, that you could still be uh, releasing the, the, the virus from your nose and your mouth. And so anything you can do to decrease the amount of virus that you're putting into the environment is good when you go outside. So when you're in public, when people are around you. Obviously, the, the primary advice remains the same. Stay home as much as you can. Uh, and don't use this uh, to lull yourself into some sort of false sense of security. But a cloth mask couldn't probably uh, you know, decrease the amount of virus that you're releasing. So you're not really doing it to protect yourself. You're doing it to protect the people around you if and when you have to go into public. It is a change. It's going to be confusing for people. But look, I, I think I get it now. I understand the science. I've talked to many doctors about this. And, and you know, like I said, my daughter made me this mask. I will probably use it if I go out into public. Uh, I don't think you have to have a mask like this. You can use something else. But um, I think that that, that that is something we're going to see in this country. I wanted to ask you yesterday, and we ran out of time. Uh, you live in Atlanta, and your governor, uh, Kemp, uh, said yesterday uh, when he announced that he was finally issuing um, some guidelines and regulations for your state that he didn't know until the previous 24 hours uh, that asymptomatic people might be carriers of coronavirus. You've been saying, and the CDC, which is also in Georgia, have been saying that asymptomatic people are carriers for weeks, if not months. How is it that a governor uh, of your state, the governor of your state, didn't know that. To, to be clear, it's months, Jake, uh, you know, months, beginning of February. I went back and looked at this afterward just to remind myself, you and I talked about this back on February 4th, just, just so, you know, months ago. Um, it, it's, it's ridiculous, Jake. I think probably, you know, my wife and I were talking there twice that she's seen me the angriest. I've probably both been on your program uh, once, you know, a couple of weeks ago, as you know, when we weren't seeing social distancing, despite the fact that it was, you know, clear that it was necessary. And now, you know, talking about the governor, it, it, it's unbelievable to me. I think just a flat out excuse, you know, uh, it, it makes no sense either. He was completely not paying attention to the biggest issue of our time possibly, you know, uh, increasing the likelihood that citizens of his state would get sick, maybe even die, uh, possible that it would increase the likelihood that hospitals would become uh, more overwhelmed. And he was seeing some of the hospitals in Georgia actually starting to become overwhelmed in Albany, for example, Georgia. I, I, I don't I don't get it. I, I, I don't understand it at all. I mean, maybe this is maybe there's things at play that are, are just mysterious to me. But he said yesterday that he just found out over the last 24 hours that asymptomatic spread was possible, that people who didn't have symptoms could spread that. 
The CDC, which is right down the street, has said that. Uh, my kids who go to grade school in this state already knew that. I mean, they, everyone knew this. So it, it's, it's, uh, it's really ridiculous. I'm glad that, you know, they're at least going to start the stay-at-home order, I believe, tonight. It's still not in place, I don't believe. But I, I, I think one day, Jake, hopefully you and I can go back and look at what exactly happened there. It's just some of the most confounding things that I've heard and seen from leaders ranging from the president to, to your governor to, to other governors, just people not paying attention. Or Anyway, let me move on to another question. Sanjay, we keep hearing about desperate cases among not older people, younger people. Mm. Uh, we've seen this time after time after time. It's not just people who are 60 and over or people who have pre-existing conditions, as was the original guidance. Um, it might more adversely impact older people, but it certainly does not spare young people. Um, do we have any idea of what's going on? Uh, and do we have any idea of, of the percentages now in the United States in terms of how often it is children, young adults, you know, middle-aged people getting this as opposed to seniors? Yeah. Well, you know, look, it's very clear, and I can show you the numbers, the percentages right away here. We, we look at uh, younger people, you know, people clearly be, be below the age of 60. And we see, you know, that if you start to do the math there, that actually the vast majority of people who are infected are actually, you know, 65 and younger. And, and you, you, you will also know that, uh, you know, 20 to 30 percent of people who are in hospitals, who are hospitalized with this infection, are actually between the ages of 20 and 44. This clearly can infect younger people. They are not, uh, you know, immune to this. Uh, it can clearly infect them and make them sick. And, uh, you know, sometimes the impact can last a long time. Jake, part of it is probably because there's a lot of pre-existing conditions, even among younger people. I mean, you know, uh, we, older people are obviously more vulnerable, but younger people can be affected by this. I'll tell you quickly, Jake, older people are likely, uh, the, the, the virus is sort of maybe overwhelming their immune system, and that's part of the reason they're getting so sick. With younger people, it could be that their immune system reacts so strongly to the virus that they, they develop what's called a storm, a cytokine storm in their body, and it's actually the inflammation that is making them so sick and, and sometimes, rare cases, actually causing death. Oh, wow. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks. Always great to talk to you. I'll talk to you Monday once again. And you can listen to Dr. Break. Gupta's full podcast, Facts versus Fiction, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's always a great listen. Coming up, billions of dollars in loans for small businesses available right now. But getting that money not proving to be so easy for everyone. What's behind that problem? That's next. Plus, patients could be reduced to points on a scale. How some hospitals are preparing for a worst case scenario. Uh, Preparing, they're not doing it yet, but that would require them to choose who lives and who dies. Stay with us. Welcome back. The president's latest line of defense seems to be two-pronged. First, he and the administration are doing an excellent job and any complaints are fake news. Second, the ventilator shortage issue is the fault of the governors and the hospitals, not his fault. Even the lack of working ventilators in the national stockpile is not his fault. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, governors are not the only ones Trump is pointing the finger of blame at. 
The White House is expected to make a final decision on whether all Americans should wear masks in the coming days. Though some of President Trump's advisors fear it will lull the public into a false sense of security. We don't want people to feel like, oh, I'm wearing a mask. I'm protected and I'm protecting others. You may While Trump and his aides decide on guidance, a new face emerged yesterday in the administration's response to the coronavirus. Let me uh, introduce uh, Jared Kushner. In his first briefing on the pandemic, Jared Kushner drew backlash for this remark. The notion of the federal stockpile was it's supposed to be our stockpile. It's not supposed to be state stockpiles. But many pointed to the language on the National Stockpiles website, which said it was for state, local, tribal and territorial responders who need federal assistance. That language was changed overnight to fit Kushner's description. The move added to the mounting frustration among governors who are looking to the White House for help to get ventilators, masks and other life-saving equipment. This will go down in history as a profound failure of our national government. The president is also now feuding with a company he once said was proof of his success. Vice President Pence toured 3M's headquarters in Minnesota last month, but now Trump is using the Defense Production Act to force the company to make more masks. And 3M is pushing back. The narrative that we are not doing everything we can to maximize delivery of respirators in our home country, nothing could be further from the truth. The company's CEO says Trump wants them to stop exporting masks to Canada and Latin America, which the White House has denied. We're more than happy to shift our overseas production to the U.S., but there are going to be consequences on a humanitarian level as we are the sole and often the sole provider of those respirators in countries around the world. 3M CEO is also warning that the move could backfire by causing other governments to clamp down on the export of materials to the U.S. Now, Jake, Republican Senator Cory Gardner has sent a letter to the Department of Health and Human Services requesting a probe into what's going on with the distribution of these ventilators. And when Politico asked him about Kushner's comment about the stockpile, he said he didn't know what the president's son-in-law and senior advisor was talking about. But he said the stockpile is for the country. And of course, the country is made up of those states. It would seem to seem to follow. Uh, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. In money today, a chaotic start as $349 billion worth of essentially free money went up for grabs for an estimated 30 million small businesses in the United States. Final guidance to lenders went out late last night, only hours before banks were set to begin taking applications. I, I want to bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley, uh, along with Brock Blake, who's CEO of Lendio, which helps small businesses find loan options. T thanks to both of you for joining us. Uh, Julia, I'll start with you. J.P. Morgan Chase, Capital One, both had clear hesitations about taking applications. What are the big concerns for the banks? For all of them, Jake, you said this was a mammoth undertaking, but the start was chaotic. Firstly, the terms and conditions. We didn't get those until late last night. A formal application form also not confirmed until last night. They were just the basics. Try building a website based on a form that you don't yet have finalized. Then there were other things. We can pay out billions of dollars. That was the message from the banks. But who's going to replace that money to allow us to keep making loans? And then basic things as well, like who carries the risk here of verifying the borrower information? The Treasury finally said last night, look, just make the loans. We'll take on the risk here. But a lot of information came incredibly late. And the chaos today represents and reflects that.
And Brock, you lit up Twitter with questions from lenders 24 hours before the lenders were supposed to start taking these loan applications. Were most, any, some of the questions answered uh, when the Treasury Department finally released the guidance last night? Well, some of the questions were definitely answered last night. Uh, The most important being, what is the actual application that a business owner needs to complete to get one of these loans? That was released last night at uh, 10.44 p.m. Eastern. And so the lending institutions across the country have been scrambling. Most didn't sleep last night trying to implement technology so business owners can go online and actually apply for these loans. And Brock, let me just stay with you for a second. White House Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow said today, quote, there are always glitches. Uh, Are the glitches understandable given a program of this magnitude rolled out in just seven days while companies are shedding jobs daily? Or was there some incompetence here? Well, there's no question this is the largest stimulus package in the history of the U.S. is being rolled out into the hands of business owners. They had seven days to make it happen and, and align thousands of lending institutions and millions of small business owners. Um, unfortunately, the guidance came late, um, but the fact that dollars are flowing today to me is a, is a big win. Most lending institutions are not prepared today to begin lending. Um, we, I think that uh, some of them will come online this afternoon probably more likely that the majority of lending institutions will come on uh, online on Monday. The challenge is most small banks and credit unions aren't prepared to spin up a, a, a technology to be able to accept applications so quickly. Uh, we're doing our best to help all of them make that happen, but it's, uh, it's an overwhelming undertaking in such a short amount of time. Julia, before noon today, the Treasury Department reported nearly $900 million worth of loans already processed. Small businesses, of course, make up more than 80 percent of America's workforce. That really speaks to just how many of these companies need this money. But but that's not really even a fraction of the money that's available. Absolutely. I mean, the Treasury Secretary tweeted earlier today that actually $1.8 billion worth of loans had been processed. But your point is exactly right. And we know the situation across the country right now. 30 million businesses, most of these are in distress. They barely have any cash. So a lot of people still struggling to get access and to understand where. He said it was the community banks that were providing the money here. Bank of America said halfway through the day today they'd had 58,000 customers asking for six billion dollars. And they restricted it to clients, remember. So it's a beginning. It's been quite chaotic. I think my big question is what now needs to fix to be able to ramp this up more broadly? And Brock, these loans have a 1% interest rate making. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think there's two solutions that will help get capital into the hands of business owners more quickly. One is they have to allow uh, fintech lenders to participate in the distribution of these capital uh, of these loans. They have the technology available. Uh, they're set up to handle high volume, and they can be they can participate. In addition to the community banks and the large uh, finance and, and credit unions that are participating, the other thing is that most financial institutions don't have the balance sheet or the capital to fund the the demand of loans that are, is out there. And so if the Treasury can give some guidance on how a lending institution can fund the loans and then get reimbursed or replenish their capital so they can keep uh, funding the loans to the business owners that are out there, there is so much demand 
a lot of these financial institutions are going to go through their capital way too quickly. I agree. All right, Brock Blake and Julia Chatterley, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up, who lives and who dies? It could come down to a patient's score on a point scale in a worst case scenario, but they're talking about it. Stay with us. A grim and unimaginable reality that doctors across the country may face in a worst-case scenario. Medical professionals tell CNN they hope it never comes to it, but they're forced to develop a point system in the inevitability that hospitals need to decide which patients get life-saving care and which don't. It's a nightmare scenario, of course. It's not inevitable, but it might happen. CNN's Drew Griffin is taking a closer look now at how this protocol might work and how close we are to needing it. The horrifying pictures from inside New York hospitals show patients hooked up to the only machines keeping them alive. When the virus takes over the lungs, ventilators take over the breathing. Without them, immediately when needed, the prognosis is dim. It's bad. Um, You can watch a patient go from breathing room air to... 72 hours later needing to be intubated. So far, hospitals have kept pace, but barely. The situation so bleak, the U.S. government put out a video on treating two patients with one ventilator. You obviously wouldn't do it unless you were in dire circumstances. But the dire circumstances are here. States and the federal government are in a bidding war for ventilators made in China. We can't get any more ventilators. And it is time now to prepare for what may be the inevitable. This article in the New England Journal of Medicine was written to prepare doctors in the event they must choose who gets a life-saving ventilator and who does not. Robert Trug is one of the authors. I worked all weekend on, uh, on helping on a number of them, and uh, hospitals now, many hospitals have these in place. So um, I think that it's going to uh, be extremely difficult. Unbelievably difficult for those physicians who have to make the call. That's right. And of course, the families uh, uh, and patients as as well. Uh, These are life and death decisions. And um, uh, it's going to cause a tremendous amount of suffering if we get there. The decision who lives, who dies, would come down to a point system. The elderly, patients diagnosed with cancer, COPD, diabetes, any chronic lung or terminal illness, would be eligible for care but score lower than those who are otherwise healthy with a potential longer life to live. The points would determine what's in the best interest of society, not just the individual. Everybody is eligible, but beyond that point, then it does come down to giving it to those people uh, where we're either going to save the most number of lives or the most number of, of life years. And yes, it does mean that people uh, with other severe illnesses uh, will receive a lower priority score. In New Orleans, where the virus is predicted to get even worse, there are enough ventilators now, but within days, they could be out. And then after that, you begin having very challenging conversations about how you allocate the vents, and you think about which patient would benefit the most. And that's a horrifying place for anyone to be in, and it would certainly be a damning indictment of our country. And Jake, what is infuriating about all of this is it was predicted. CNN has found 10 government reports between 2003 and 2015, all predicting that if we faced a pandemic just like this, we would run out of ventilators. And here we are. Jake? Drew Griffin, thank you so much. One New York hospital has found 
a creative way to convert other medical equipment into ventilators by using basic parts they already have. Joining us for an exclusive interview to explain how all of this works is Dr. Charles Powell. He's the chief of Mount Sinai's Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Division. Dr. Powell, thanks so much for joining us. I understand you're using simple parts to help convert CPAP machines into ventilators. Explain to us what a CPAP machine is, how you came up with this, and show us how it works. Sure. Thanks very much, Jake. So we were fortunate to receive a generous donation of these home CPAP machines that are used for patients with sleep apnea. Donation was from the Tesla company. And so the question came, can we use these simple devices to ventilate a patient in one of our ICUs who has complications from COVID pneumonia? And we have a very experienced and accomplished team of sleep physiologists here at Mount Sinai, and they said yes. And then we said, how? And then they started to explain it, and it was really complicated. So we just said, what it needs to do is X, Y, and Z in terms of ventilating a patient, and what it needs to also do is avoid any spread of the virus. So they constructed a protocol and a simple circuit. So when you take that little machine I just showed you and you hook it up to a test lung, it inflates the lung. And it does it in a way so the virus doesn't get moved around and it doesn't get exposed to anybody in the area. So we took that to the simulation lab. We tested it. We improved upon it. And it's been evaluated now in the clinical setting, and it works. We now have received subsequent donations of similar machines, and we'll be able to increase our ventilator supply to put us in position where we can be in very good shape to meet the anticipated increased surge of patients who are going to need ventilators. So, as you say, medical students are now assembling these machines for hospitals to be able to use. How many ventilators have you been able to produce? Um, is this simple enough uh, for hospitals across the country just to follow basic directions and make them themselves? Yes, the protocol is simple, and the protocol has already been released widely, and it is available for anyone at any time. So with the appropriate supplies in hand, and I must say that there is a shortage of supplies in some locations, similar to supp- shortages of many supplies throughout the country, but with the s- appropriate supplies in hand, any hospital can do it following the protocol. They don't have to use the same exact machine. They don't have to use the same exact circuit, just something similar that incorporates the filters that are incredibly important to prevent the spread of the virus. And then that could be useful to increase the supply using these very inexpensive, very available machines. They don't work on every patient who needs it, who has a COVID-associated complication. The patients early on need a more conventional ventilator that's more powerful. But during the course of illness, patients get better. We often. And when they do, they can be supported with a simpler device just like this. So you're also trying to cut down on the amount of protective gear that doctors and nurses need. Um, So you also made these machines controllable from outside the patient's room if need be. Yes. So I just want to clarify, this machine does not reduce the need to wear the appropriate protective equipment when we're in the room. But what it does do is avoid the number of times somebody may need to enter the room and be exposed with our ability to monitor and control the device from outside the room. And you're working in the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic in the U.S., New York. Um, Can you explain to us just how bad it is on the front lines at Mount Sinai, how much worse 
you expect it to get? It's bad. Uh, it was the kind of event that maybe had been predicted but never was thought to be able to occur, and it's occurred. All the hospitals in the area have developed strategic plans, and those were developed months ago, and they've been in action for the several weeks now. And the goal of all these strategic plans is to stay one step ahead, one step ahead in making sure that we have the adequate personnel and equipment to take care of the surge of patients who are going to come to our hospitals. So the hospitals are overwhelmed in terms of volume, but by overwhelmed, I mean it just takes initiatives to create additional bed space, to bring in additional staff, to bring in additional supplies, and to put us in a manageable position to handle the surge, which we've been able to do. But really, the main problem is volume. This is a volume crisis in terms of the number of patients who need hospitalization for COVID-19. And the primary determinant of the wow. volume is the doubling time. And that is affected directly by social distancing. So what we've seen, to address your question of how long this is going to last, is that over the past several weeks, the curve has flattened, in New York in particular. Each day, the peak number of patients requiring hospitalization seems to decrease by one to 2,000, maybe a little bit more some days. So that peak, we think, if social distancing continues to be implemented and is effective, is going to make the peak at an area where this will continue to be manageable, albeit it will go on longer, with a peak anticipated around mid to late April. Well, God bless you and all the hospital workers and healthcare workers at Mount Sinai in New York. Really appreciate what you're doing and your ingenuity as well. Dr. Charles Powell, thank you so much. Thank you, Jake. Coming up, one world leader uses the coronavirus pandemic as cover to give himself more power. The stunning move next. In our world lead, nearly 8% of the UK's National Health Service staff is now sick. A few have died, including 36-year-old nurse and mother of three, Arima Nazreen, who passed away this morning. In Italy, 73 doctors and 24 nurses have died from coronavirus. Madrid now turning its third ice rink into a makeshift morgue to handle the overwhelming number of bodies. And in Hungary, autocratic Prime Minister Viktor Orban is taking full advantage of the chaos caused by the pandemic. And as CNN's Nick Robertson reports, Orban is using it as cover for a blatant power grab. Unfolding on national TV, an apparent blatant power grab. Hungary's autocratic Prime Minister Viktor Orban using COVID-19 as apparent cover. Wins a vote giving him power to rule by decree. Powers he says he needs to speed COVID response decision making. Some of our important decisions have been overturned, he says. Our defence ship has been leaked, and this leak has been patched today. But there is no time limit on the sweeping reforms that effectively allow him to lock up journalists who criticise him for up to five years. Perhaps as shocking, the European Union's initial tepid reaction. A page-long written response, not even mentioning Hungary by name, only later toughened. Any emergency measures must be limited to what is necessary 
and strictly proportionate. They must not last indefinitely. All across Europe, police forces and armies are getting new powers. Interpreting the limits is a hot-button issue. In the UK, one regional force was criticised for using a drone to film a couple driving to a beauty spot to walk their dog, then shaming them by posting it online. There have been some incidents that I, I, we wouldn't have want to have happened. People were trying to understand how to work in this very new environment. We are all asking ourselves those same questions. How much freedom to give up? For how long? And under whose control? What Orban is doing in Hungary, however, goes way beyond that debate. Europe's most illiberal democracy has just lurched towards a Russia-style autocracy. Since he came to power a decade ago, Orban has been straining against Europe's democratic values, refusing to take in migrants during the 2015 crisis, more recently hollowing out Hungary's judiciary, over time turning the country into a one-party state. All this when truth about the coronavirus pandemic is at a premium. Now, it is more important than ever that journalists are able to do their job freely and precisely so as to counter disinformation and to ensure that our citizens have access to crucial information. Orban's timing is perhaps not surprising. Only a few weeks ago, Russia's Putin extended his own rule till 2036. As the world is distracted by the pandemic, both men reaping personal gain. Now, the, the European Union does have some leverage over Orban because he gets a lot of European Union funding. They're not seeming to use it just yet. And an update here in the UK, Jake, another British nurse, Amy O'Rourke, 39 years old, like Amira Nashreen you mentioned before, also a mother of three. Four doctors are now dead. Two more health workers have died as well, we learned this evening. So all of this arriving probably on Hungary's doorstep soon. And yes, there are leaders who will take advantage of all that suffering, Jake. All right, Nick Robertson, thank you so much. In military news today, a remarkable show of support and solidarity. They're chanting Captain Crozier. Sailors from the USS Theodore Roosevelt giving a hero send-off to Captain Brett Crozier after he was relieved of his command. In an effort to save the lives of his sailors, Captain Crozier sounded the alarm about a coronavirus outbreak on the aircraft carrier and the need to get to port as soon as possible in a memo to Navy leadership, which eventually got leaked to the media. CNN's Pentagon correspondent, Barbara Starr, uh, joins me now to discuss. And Barbara, Captain Crozier, he's not accused of leaking the memo to the media. So why was he relieved of command? Well, fired, uh, to, to put it bluntly, of course, Jake, the Navy is making the case that he was relieved of command because he went around the chain of command, that he sent this letter without going to his nearest boss, who they say was just down the hall in the carrier they were on and discussing his worries and concerns, and that he sent this letter, this memo about those worries about his sailors far and wide, and that he shouldn't have done that. They also say that this resulted in a loss 
of confidence in his ability to command. Uh, words that have been used include emotional, you know, they say they're unsure that he could have gone ahead with proper decision making in combat. But look at what happened on that deck. Those hundreds of sailors turned up because word swept through the ship about when he was leaving. They didn't just show up. They wanted to give him the send-off and the loyalty that they felt for him when he expressed his worries about all of them. Barbara, is this the end of Captain Crozier's military career? Well, he's been, quote, reassigned, so we'll see what happens. But right now, two investigations look likely. The Navy's already said they're going to look into it. And now several members, Democratic members of Congress, are asking the Pentagon's inspector general to look into the circumstances surrounding him being relieved of duty. One of the big questions is, how did COVID get aboard the ship? They'd had a port call in Vietnam. Who agreed to that port call? And did Captain Crozier think the port call was a good idea? Is that what brought this all about? That's going to be one of the big questions, Jake. All right, a story we're going to keep on top of. Barbara Starr at the Pentagon, thank you so much. Louisiana is quickly becoming one of the coronavirus hotspots, which with over 10,000 cases this Sunday morning on CNN State of the Union. I'm going to talk to Governor John Bell Edwards about what Louisiana is doing. This is at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday, along with other guests. Jake, please join us then. More than 56,000 People have died from uh, coronavirus worldwide, from a prolific playwright to beloved musicians, authors, doctors. We're going to remember some of the lives lost. That's next. The inspirational words of Bill Withers' classic, uh, Lean On Me. Today we learned that we lost Withers, the singer-songwriter whose songs include such classics as Ain't No Sunshine and Lovely Day passed away from heart complications, his family says. Artists, heroes, and everyday people taken by COVID-19 are filling the obituary pages. These are men and women who help shape American culture, as remembered by CNN's Tom Foreman. When Ellis Marcellus played with his musical sons, Branford, Winton, Delfeo, and Jason, it was jazz royalty at work. Now the virus has racked their hometown of New Orleans, taking Ellis away. I grew up in Bombay. When Chef Floyd Cardo stepped into his New York kitchen, he brought the flavors of India with him and a special spirit, too. I believe that if you want to cook, you got to be happy. Happy people make good food. And when Dr. James T. Goodrich went into the operating room to separate conjoined twins, he came out with a bond of his own. you got to think after a while, they're kind of like become your own kids. Since you don't really have to have your own... The number of famous and influential folks falling to COVID-19 is steadily growing. Many have been musicians, including Adam Schlesinger, Alan Merrill, who wrote I Love Rock and Roll, Wallace Roney, and Joe Diffie. Where is the man from the backwoods? Actor Mark Blum and playwright Terrence McNally are gone. Journalist Maria Mercator, too. In one Manhattan hospital, the staff celebrates every COVID-19 patient well enough to go home, and most people who get the virus do survive. Still, so many have fallen, taking their important work with them. Sociologist and author William Helmrich walked every street in New York to better understand the human condition. Lorena Borges came from Mexico to become an outspoken American activist for transgender rights. Rabbi Romy Cohn survived the Holocaust 
pulpit at 91 did not survive this. Minister Ronnie Hampton, renowned for his community outreach down south, is gone as well. I want you to know that my faith has never wavered. And Janice Preschel ran a New Jersey food pantry, a job she continued by phone even as she lay dying in her hospital bed. None of these folks is more important, of course, than any of the thousands of other Americans who have passed. But they are big reminders of how the human geography of our nation is changing. Jake. Tom Foreman, thank you so much. It has been a week. A reminder, we are going to get through this. I'll see you Sunday morning. Until then, stay healthy, stay strong, stay at home. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 